0: Writer, director, musician, and comic book creator John Carpenter has defined the modern-day horror genre. His Twitter handle is literally at the horror master. Most notably, Carpenter co-wrote and directed the landmark slasher film Halloween in 1978 with a $300,000 budget, which if you don't know a lot about film budgets, that's basically like $10 in a roll of tape. The film went on to gross over $70 million and resulted in seven sequels and countless nightmares. I'm your host, Anna Dresden, on the American Masters podcast. Other John Carpenter films include The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, They Live, and about a dozen other titles, many of which have become household names to fans of horror and sci-fi. Carpenter also writes and performs original compositions for the majority of his films. And in recent years, he has turned much of his artistic focus to writing and performing original music. He released his debut studio album in 2015, titled Lost Themes, and in 2016 he released Lost Themes 2. This guy loves a sequel. In the world of comic books, Carpenter is the co-creator of the award-winning bi-monthly series John Carpenter's Asylum, and the acclaimed annual anthology collection, John Carpenter's Tales for a Halloween Night. We are so excited and very scared to have the Horror Master himself in the studio for a conversation with American Masters podcast series producer, Joe Skinner.
1: Well, here we are in L.A. Uh, It's actually my first time out here. Uh, with John Carpenter. Where are you from? I'm from New Jersey originally. What the yeah. hell?
2: <laughs> Welcome to Los Angeles.
1: Thank you. Uh-huh. Thank you. I feel like you're one of the first names I think of when I think of L.A. Oh, is that uh, right? Yeah, it is because uh-huh. uh, so many of your movies seem to take place in L.A. Uh-huh. But uh, I was hoping you could talk about L.A. a little bit and what, you know, how that location is important to you.
2: Well, uh, I came to uh, I came out to film school, to USC, to go to cinema school in 1968. John Ford, Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles. I saw all these guys in film school. They all came down and spoke to us. There was Orson Welles. There was Howard Hawks. In my class. Man, what's a great time. But I, I digress. L.A., it was like coming home. This, is, this was, I should have been born here. I should have been raised here. This is my home. I love Los Angeles. Uh, We have it all. We've got the ocean, we've got mountains, we've got snow if you go high enough. We've got lots of crime, we've got lots of pretty girls. We've got the prettiest girls in the world here in Los Angeles. And there's a a great music scene. And I learned uh, what I learned about uh, cinema here in Los Angeles, so it's always been Real important to me as a city to live in, and I love making movies about it, probably for a number of reasons, just because of my proximity to locations in the city, knowing it. Um, But, you know, some of the great crime thrillers took place here. The uh, Raymond Chandler type things took place in Los Angeles. So um, I love it. I love L.A.
1: But you grew up in Kentucky, right?
2: I did. I was born in northern New York, but I grew up in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky.
1: Did you ever make movies out there?
2: Um, I made 8mm movies with my dad's movie camera. What were those about? Uh, I'm not telling you, and you're never going to see them. (laughs) Ever. My father bought me a book called Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural. It was a big random house book, and they had various authors, famous authors like H.P. Lovecraft and and H.R. Mencken and others. And I started reading that book, and that was that was it. And it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft is a great, scary story. If you you got to accept some really bad writing, but he kind of invented modern science fiction horror. He, he's scary. Lord God, is he scary. The movies that scared me are movies that I saw when I was a kid, when I was a little kid but preteen and teenager that that's when you you get scared as i age and i learn how movies are made and i see what they're doing it, it becomes less scary so you talk about movies that terrified me as a kid we'd have to talk about the original thing the thing from another world there's a moment in a movie called the fly in 1959, eight, the popcorn went flying. I went jumping out of my seat. Is when the wife pulls the hood off her husband, there's this giant fly head twitching at you. It terrified me. But I don't experience that kind of terror anymore. Not quite.
1: Did you have siblings growing up? No. Uh, Did you and your friends uh, tell stories to each other, scary stories, that kind of
2: thing? I made my friends appear in my 8
1: millimeter movies. I made them act for me. So pretend you
2: see this giant monster and run
1: and, and that kind of thing. Did you retain some of the directing uh, <laughs> techniques that you had? <clears throat> yes, that's, I learned
2: everything I needed to learn right there.
1: More recently, you've been working on music. Could you kind of walk us through what your writing process is like for for when you're writing these movie scores?
2: Most of them are improvised uh, on a synthesizer, used in, primarily using a synthesizer. My musical career as a movie composer, began in film school. In film school, you have no money. So you don't have money for a composer or an orchestra. So you have to find a way to make music that sounds big or sounds big enough for your movie. And the way to do it is with a synthesizer, because with a number of tracks and using a synth, you can build up a sound that sounds like an orchestra or like a switched-on Bach, but it can sound like a scary movie, or it can sound like an action film, all sorts of things. So that's where I began. And uh, my first score was Dark Star, which I can't even tell you what kind of synthesizer I used, but uh, um, it was really primitive. And then uh, Assault and Precinct 13 and Halloween, and then I just began uh, one after another doing the scores to my movies. The technology and synthesizers got better over the years. Uh, But basically, it's a keyboard, and you can call up various sounds. By call up, I mean you can do it now on a computer by just punching in a program, or in the old days, in the tube synthesizer days they had to tune the synth sawtooth or uh, whatever sound they wanted so I of course know nothing about that so I had to get somebody to do it for me and that's where all my associations and working with other people came in and they were they had to work the machines I couldn't all I could do is sit down at a keyboard say make it sound like a deep bass sound they would and I'd play and that was it, and in the beginning, I would just play the music and then cut it in in various places, but as time went on, I began to play to a to the image, to the movie, which is great.
1: What were some of the early reactions that people had to this music?
2: Uh, indifference, <laughs> complete indifference. Uh,
1: my first
2: uh, claim to fame was, a, was the theme to uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, Somebody in England did did a cover recording of it and released it as a single. And it was called Can't Beat the System, I think it was called. God, it was awful. (laughs) Awful. But uh, reaction was never much, you know, until later in my life.
1: People reflected on it. How did uh, the theme song to Halloween come about?
2: My father bought me a pair of bongos for Christmas when I was 13. And he taught me five-four time, ba ba That's five-four time. So I, thought that was clever. so I sat down at the piano and just went and played octaves. That's where it came about. I showed the movie to an executive without music, which is a big mistake. Don't ever show a movie to anybody unless it's completely done. And the executive said, that's not scary. I'm not scared by anything like that. And then, you know, the movie came out, and it was with the music. It got scarier. So uh, I, my revenge <laughs> always takes place after the fact, so that's the problem. Yeah, never mind. That's another story.
1: You've also released two albums that have the title Lost Themes. Uh-huh. Do you have lost stories that you think connect to some of those songs, or were those created without a story in mind?
2: They were created without a story in mind, but they're soundtrackish. Soundtrackish music, and what I mean by that is I just generally compose that way. And I started this uh, the first Lost themes with my son Cody. He and I would uh, would play video games. We'd go downstairs to the music, the computer for about an hour, and we'd improvise some music. We'd come back and play video games, and go back down and play some improvise some more music. And over a period of time, we had about a I don't know, hour plus of music, so I'd just gotten a new music attorney, and uh, she said to me, well, what do you, have anything new? So I just sent along this improvisational stuff, and with, uh, two months later, I had a record deal. Well, this is nothing to this. This is easy. Why haven't I done this? I'm kidding. Uh, i was r- really excited, so... That's how it started, and it we went on from there and included my son- not only my son but my godson Daniel. We all perform and mix and and off we went, so we decided to do uh, some of my scores, you know music, just as the title says movie movie themes from nineteen seventy four to ninety eight or whatever that was
1: so it sounds like the writing process for you with music is largely improvisational or even instinctual. Almost. That's correct. Uh, but then when it comes to films, um, I see that you have a lot of collaboration and co-writing credits on a lot of your work. Could you tell me what, what the collaboration process is like for you?
2: Well, in the beginning, I
1: mean, it's all different.
2: Uh, <clears throat> after I had finished my, this, my first film, Dark Star, I got an agent, which is really lucky. That was the main thing I got out of that movie. And they told me, you have to write your way into this business. And I went, "Oh, really? I mean, they won't just hire me as a director now? No. So I had to become an idea machine. In other words, just crank out all these ideas and try to sell them. And I, for a while, I made a pretty fair living. I would go in and <clears throat> get hired to write, uh, I don't know, snakes attack a town. And okay, great. So I'd have uh, some uh, so much time to write a screenplay. Uh, let's say two months, three months, whatever it was. So I'd sit down for two weeks and write an outline. And then I'd go and date girls and go to movies and do other things until the last possible minute. And then I'd write it out based on the outline. And you get paid for doing that. Oh, that's not bad. So I, I had a pretty good living. But that wasn't what I wanted to do. I, I, so I had to i self-defensively wrote my way into the movie business. I wrote my way into directing. This is what I wanted.
1: But primarily you were just trying to get to the point of being able to direct your own projects. That's right. That's right. But a lot of your projects, they seem to have a very similar sort of theme or, or through line of outsiders sort of attacking or invading in some way. I mean, I think of They Live. I think of Prince of Darkness. Yeah. The fog.
2: Well, probably that all comes from my uh, growing up in Kentucky. My family, we were outsiders uh, and we didn't fit. This was the Jim Crow South in the 50s. And uh, oh, <laughs> everything I learned, everything I knew about evil, I learned in that little town. Every single thing. So I felt like a complete outsider with forces of darkness all around me. And uh, I'm that slipped into a lot of the movies plus people that I knew that I grew up with or went to high school with uh, I put in my films in in, in idealized ways uh, and uh, I, I wrote for what I knew which is uh, the, this kind of crazy upbringing.
1: do you specifically think about politics when you're coming up with stories or is that case that was by case <laughs>
2: they live was a particular case okay I just I had it was a scream in the dark at Reaganomics and the whole 80s uh, ethos of making money just all the things that I that I grew up with and valued especially in the, in the 70s had been overturned by Reaganomics and this wave of conservatism I just uh just couldn't take it. I had so I, I adapted this uh short story and made it about our culture but uh the '80s never ended. Okay, they're still happening. So that's why the movie seems kind of timeless, because it's still going on. And uh, especially with recent developments in politics, I think that you you get to be a certain age, and all of a sudden you stop listening to rock and roll music and you start listening to political radio. That's what happens. It just happens naturally. I think it was 40 or 45, maybe, when that happened. So I've been really tuned into politics ever since, to my chagrin. But uh, uh, that's what They Live was. Yes, it was a, a overtly political movie. The short story was called 8 o'clock in the morning. It was about a, a guy who goes to a, hyp, a, a hypnotist show. Hypnotist is on stage, says, wake up, to the, her subject. Anyway, our hero wakes up and looks around. And amongst the humans are these creatures. And uh, it's pretty typical alien invasion movie of the 50s and 60s, that kind of story of the 50s and 60s. But I made it about uh, you wake up with these sunglasses and you see what life is really like. So you see um, hidden messages on billboards and things like that. Uh,
1: what kind of movies or, or stories do you think people should be telling today?
2: They're telling the stories they need to be telling today. It always works that way. They're telling, they're telling stories that that make money, as you see. A lot of uh, superheroes make money. Some do. Maybe it's start, starting to change. There are a lot of personal stories that get made. There's some really interesting stuff being
1: done. Uh, and there's some really interesting filmmakers, too. How do you think the horror genre has changed in recent years?
2: It It goes through little evolutions by like for instance in the early 2000s i think it was was japanese horror remaking japanese horror films which are had their own little code they have their own little style like uh, the grudge and uh, the ring and things like that then uh, there there's right now we're in kind of this knowing horror which uh, the filmmakers uh, and the audiences are aware of all the tropes, horror tropes, and they use them in teasing ways. I don't know where that started, really. Maybe the Scream. It's a little smart-ass horror, but that's okay. That's all right. It works. It, uh, look, horror always veers into comedy uh, at some point, and that's probably the end of that cycle. It kind of reflects the end. Uh, the universal cycle of monsters, Dracula... Frankenstein, The Wolfman, they were in the 30s. And in 1948, it was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And that kind of was a comedy. And that sort of sealed the doom. That's kind of the way it goes. The comedy pops its head up, and it's fun to watch. Horror films are now an interesting case because they've always been with us, and they always will be. And they keep changing with the culture and the decades and the people. But everybody in the world is scared of things. Everybody on the planet is scared of things. We're all born afraid that some big stranger whacks us on the butt. Most most of the time, when we're born, I mean, there's death. You realize that you're going to die. We're afraid of that. We're afraid of loss of identity, of loved one. We're afraid of being disfigured by something or physical pain, emotional pain, whatever it is that you're afraid of. I am too. We're all afraid of the same things. A universal language is spoken in horror and horror evolves with the society as the society keeps moving along. It does too. So horror movies have evolved. And uh, since I started making them, a very few are great. Some are good, most are fair, and the big majority are pieces of crap. It's always been that
1: way. Is there a moment in your writing process when you feel like you know you've got something, or you you know you've arrived at something?
2: Upon completion of the movie,
1: I feel like thank
2: God put this piece of crap out. And uh, y- you know, I've written and I've I've written and planned so many things that haven't come to fruition. You just you can't invest in that. You always think you have something interesting. You always think, well, this is special. This is great. I love it. When nobody else does, uh, you move on. That's life.
1: You're a busy person. You've been doing a lot of stuff with comic books, too. Yes. i hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Well,
2: I'm not the busy person. It's my wife that's the busy person. She uh, is the, publishes this little line of comics that we have. I put my name on it to try to make money. She does most of the work. We, have, uh, we had Asylum. We have Tales for Halloween Night, which are scary tales. We have now Tales of Science Fiction coming out. And it's just a new world. It's great. And it's a different art form. It shares some similarities to uh, movies. Uh, and sh- shares some similarities to storyboards. But it is in itself very different also. And it's really, it's really fun. And How do you
1: select the stories for that?
2: Make them up and find really talented people who make them up. It's all, always the same. And uh, we've got a lot of really great writers working. Steve Niles contributed to us. And James Ninnis. Really, it was, and the art. Oh, man. These guys are talented. So even I made up a book story or two. So I, uh, it's fun.
1: I keep my hand in Uh, Do you currently have a preferred medium to be working in?
2: My preferred medium is to sit in front of a television set and watch either basketball or play video games. That's my preferred living style. I want to do what what my dream is as a human being now, now that I'm older and sort of semi-retired from movie directing. I want to do nothing and make money while I'm doing nothing. That's my dream. And if you can help me in any way achieve that dream, I would appreciate it.
1: Well, John, if somebody gave you an unlimited amount of money, maybe $300 million today to tell a story for 2017, what would that be?
2: The country is, t- is really divided between two ideologies. So you'd have to really make two movies. One I wouldn't have to do much because the name of the movie is Donald Trump, President. That would scare I, about 75% of the public. The other 35% that would have to be something different. I don't know quite know. Maybe a communist takeover, and they'd have to live under under my rule. Maybe I don't know. But it would it would it's it's bifurcated. It's a two it's two because the country is so divided. Again, the base the the, the, the language. The gore, the stuff that you see would be stuff that scares everybody. But you have to get people to buy into your plot. So that it would be two movies. But uh, I'd be willing to start on that tomorrow if you just come up with the money. As a matter of fact, you just leave it over there by that chair and I'll start right away. It's always been crazy. America's a crazy place. They used to fight duels. Congressmen fought duels. I mean, they're nuts. They used to publish scandalous stories about each other, you know, call each other horrible names. So it's you've got everything in America. You've got just crazy people here and wonderful and surfers and everything. People from New Jersey are even allowed to live in America.
1: Fertile ground for horror movies. Yeah, yeah. John, thank you so much for coming in. I loved it. It was great, man.
0: You can hear John Carpenter's new album, Anthology, movie themes from 1974 to 1998, which collects 13 works from across his filmography, Friday, October 20th. The American Masters podcast is produced by Joe Skinner, with sound engineering by John Berman, Ed Campbell, and Josh Broom. Original artwork for the American Masters podcast has been designed by Christiana Lombardo. For American Masters, we'd like to give a special thanks to series producer Julie Sachs and supervising producer Junko Tsunoshima. And I have been your host, Anna Dresden. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher for future episodes. And visit the American Masters website at pbs.org slash American Masters for very cool digital archive gems, past episodes, and more. Come back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast.